Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medicom Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. This week, you know, it's episode 90 already. We have two interviews about topics that many doctors have to deal with. Um, Firstly, we have a short discussion with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw. She's a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney, and she's going to talk about the legal doctrine called, quote, assumption of the risk, end quote. A lot of doctors actually have questions about medical malpractice that goes along these lines. If a patient chooses to come to me for medical care and I explain the risks and they agree to the treatment, then how can they turn around and sue me? Aren't they agreeing to those risks? Well, I don't know the answer to that question, but Dr. Medlaw takes us through it. The second interview is not just about a single study like I sometimes focus, but is more general, and it's a top-line discussion about new understandings in gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance, including celiac disease. I speak with Cynthia Kelly, CEO of the Gluten Intolerance Group based in Auburn, Washington State, who is a dietitian and an expert in celiac disease management. She also has personal experience in how her day-to-day activities have had to change since the diagnosis of celiac disease herself. She reviews the pathophysiology and touches upon some of the obstacles that many people that want or need to reduce their gluten intake may come to their medical team to ask for advice. Enjoy listening. Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney, this time to discuss assumption of the risk. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. A lot of doctors have a question about medical malpractice. If a patient chooses to come to me for medical care and I explain the risks and they agree to the treatment, then how can they turn around and sue me? Aren't they agreeing to those risks? Well, what they're actually talking about there is a legal doctrine called assumption of the risk. And that's a defense against a negligence claim based on the plaintiff who's now suing, uh, having actually agreed to take on the risk that they're suing about. Well, that sounds a lot like informed consent. Well, they're actually somewhat alike because for assumption of the risk to be used as a defense, someone must be informed of the specific risks and agree to go ahead anyway, which is what's done in the consenting procedure. And like with informed consent, assumption of the risk uh, doesn't cover reckless or intentional conduct that harms someone. So why doesn't assigned consent just stop a medical malpractice case at the start? Well, the reason that it doesn't is that assumption of the risk doesn't apply to medical care. What do you mean by that? Um, Let me answer that by talking about situations where it does apply. There can be express assumption of the risk uh, when there are injuries and things like, uh, you know, hang gliding or bungee jumping, things that are inherently dangerous. And that's where the person who wants to engage in the risky activity actually signs a release with the operator. That's why it's called express, because there's a piece of paper that expressly says, I know it's dangerous, I want to do it anyway. Implied assumption of the risk is usually asserted in cases where someone's gotten injured because they were, by their own choice, 
uh, in a place where an activity with dangerous potential was going on. An example that's usually given is a baseball game where a stray ball can hit somebody in the head who's just sitting in the stands. So instead of an actual document stating that that person specifically consented to being hit by a fly ball, uh, you know, the, the risk that that could happen, uh, their choice to be present in a place where such events are known to happen is held to be evidence of their consent to take on that risk. But these are situations where the operator owes no specific duty to the individual participant. So that should just not apply to medical care because that, as we've often said, is a fiduciary relationship where, you know, the doctor has the highest duty to care for the patient. How does that shift the issue? Well, applying assumption of the risk to medical treatment would actually relieve the doctor of their duty of care to the patient as long as they weren't grossly negligent or actively trying to hurt them. Now, that clearly can't occur in a fiduciary setting because there the doctor is charged to always act for the benefit of the patient. And this actually goes back to what a patient is consenting to when, informally, they do consent. What do you mean by that? Well, consent is being given to the treatment being done well, which implies the duty of care and that the person who's doing it is not being negligent. The person who's consenting is saying, look, I understand that even a good treatment done entirely properly can have certain risks. What they're not agreeing to is the treatment being done negligently that then just happens to produce the same harm that they were warned about. Uh, give me an example. Suppose the patient was warned that uh, pneumothorax is an intrinsic risk of a lung biopsy and they still agree to accept that risk. That doesn't exonerate a doctor who then performs the biopsy negligently and produces a pneumothorax. Now, it's, it's just clearly not the intention of a consenting patient to free the doctor of the responsibility to mitigate risk on their behalf by actually doing the treatment with care so that even the known risks that they were warned about will be less likely. How about if the patient gives the doctor a hold harmless letter? Wouldn't that be consistent with patient autonomy and actually be an assumption of the risk? if the patient wants a particular type of care that the doctor is reluctant about? Well, they can give such a letter, but it won't actually shield the doctor. And uh, in fact, it would probably establish liability. That's because the duty of care that a doctor has includes a duty to assess the reasonability of what's being requested of them and to refuse to comply if that's a terrible idea medically. And the patient cannot relieve them of that duty. This goes back to the beneficence model that we talked about when we did our discussion about when the patient wants to be the one in charge. It's part of the doctor's duty of care to be the adult in the room and to tell the patient when a medical request is just not a good choice. You can't be the rubber stamp for what a patient is willing to accept the risk of. So assumption of the risk as a defense is therefore generally never going to be presented in a malpractice case, right? Uh, yeah, and in the rare case that it is proffered, the facts are likely to be very unusual. What are you referring to? Uh, let me give you an example of a pretty famous older case from New York 
Uh, it's called Schneider v. Ravici. Uh, in that case, a patient with breast cancer went to several reputable doctors, all of whom recommended surgery for her breast cancer. Uh, she refused to have the tumor removed, and she instead went to a guy who was saying he was a quack. And uh, his bizarre concoctions, of course, uh, failed, and her cancer spread. So she then sued him for malpractice, and she won, although the jury, looking at her level of fault, actually found her 50% liable for her own injuries, but it said 50% was on him. So the doctor then appealed, and he said she shouldn't even have been allowed to bring the suit because express assumption of the risk. Remember, like the bungee jumper because she had signed a consent form that said that she knew that the treatment was unconventional and that there were no guarantees. So the appeals court held that it was appropriate to consider her, and this is their quote, awareness of the risk of refusing conventional treatment under the assumption of the risk doctrine. Now, this was a unique situation, though, because this patient had voluntarily stepped outside of standard medical care, despite knowing that it was very risky to do so. I mean, she had actually been warned by several reputable doctors that she had originally consulted that surgery was absolutely necessary. In, in more modern jurisprudence, it's unlikely that assumption of the risk will be accepted by a court. Facts like these would be a predicate for a comparative negligence claim by the defense, as, as they were, but not an actual barrier to bringing the case. Wouldn't making an assumption of the risk claim actually likely backfire in a malpractice case? Because it would look to the jurors as though the doctor was trying to get out of their role to practice properly. Great point, and absolutely it would. I mean, yeah, yeah, just get the mental image of a defense attorney going, valenti non fit injuria, which means to a willing person no injury is done, and waving around a consent form to explain why a defendant's doctor proven negligent conduct, it just doesn't matter because, hey, the patient agreed. So, can you summarize the topic for us? Sure. The legal doctrine of assumption of the risk in which someone agrees to be exposed to a dangerous activity does not apply in the setting of medical care because medical care is delivered under a fiduciary obligation of the doctor to not engage in or encourage or give their permission for actions that are likely to cause harm to their patient. Dr. Medlaw, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for the chance to talk about another important topic. Our next interview is with Cynthia Kelly, the CEO of the Gluten Intolerance Group, and she's going to tell us all about that. So thank you so much for joining us. And could you just start by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your passion? Sure. My name is Cynthia Kelly. I am a dietitian here in the U.S. I have worked for the Gluten Intolerance Group for over 25 years. My passion has always been clinical practice that works with people who have chronic conditions. I've worked as a clinical dietitian, as a diabetes educator, and in the renal unit for many years during my clinical practices before I came to the Gluten Intolerance Group. I want to make sure people have the opportunity to live healthy and good lives. 
right now. My full focus is strictly on working with people who deal with gluten sensitivity disorders, celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, other people who choose gluten-free diets for different reasons. Celiac disease is one of these conditions, is that correct? That is correct. But there's also non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Absolutely. Celiac disease is genetic. It's autoimmune. So if you have the genes that will trigger celiac disease, it's possible to get celiac disease. But not everyone who carries these genetic markers do get celiac disease. Gluten sensitivity, on the other hand, is a disease that we're finding out more and more about, but we still don't have a diagnosis criteria for. So it is truly a rule-out disease at this point in time. Then we also deal with people who have wheat sensitivities, um, wheat allergies, not as much as people who choose gluten-free because of gluten sensitivity for celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And so I'd like to just zoom in a little bit on the, the road to diagnosis. I know that that's a particularly troublesome area for patients with these conditions. Could you talk about what physicians should know, in particular general practitioners, about celiac disease and NCGS? So it's really important to recognize, first of all, that patients with celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity may have similar symptoms. They may all complain of a foggy brain. They may all have complaints of GI distress. You may see iron deficiency anemia in both of these patients. The challenge is there are so many symptoms. There's over 100 symptoms for celiac disease alone. And then gluten sensitivity has additional symptoms that it's hard to know what disease you're looking at. And because the symptoms mimic so many other conditions, such as irritable bowel, you may make an assumption that your patient has irritable bowel syndrome. It's always really important to consider listening to the patient. The patient is their best advocate. And in my particular situation, I spent two years in and out of my doctor's, my primary doctor's office, trying to get a diagnosis. And I was given diagnosis of depression. I needed a mental health break. I had iron deficiency anemia, but they didn't really think it was that dramatic. I was losing a massive amount of weight. And yet my primary physician wasn't listening to me. So it's really important to listen to the patient's symptoms and run appropriate tests. Today, we have some really good tests that could be run for celiac disease. So we have anti-gliadin antibodies that can be run. You can run genetic markers to see if somebody has celiac disease. You would run genetic markers for somebody who might have gluten sensitivity and that would be a rule out condition for that. It would not be a rule in. So if you get a genetic marker, it's possible that your patient could have celiac disease. It's not necessarily a diagnosis of not having it. I understand. So it's probably in the top 10 hard to diagnose common diseases. It is one of the most common GI disorders that is hard to diagnose, and they really need to be seen by a GI specialist in order to get a diagnosis, but you have to work your way through most of the time in the U.S. through the medical system that says you have to have a referral. 
Um, so it's really hard to diagnose. If you've caught a patient with undetermined anemia, run a celiac panel. That's an easy blood panel general practitioner can run. If it comes back suggestive, send them on to a GI. Okay, that's great. And where can physicians find more materials so that they can learn and update their current knowledge of celiac disease and gluten intolerance in general? What kind of resources are available? So there are a number of resources out there. There are patient support groups like the Gluten Intolerance Group. We have a number of resources for patients and for physicians. We have toolkits that are specific for physicians, that are specific for nurses or the patients and dietitians. And this will give you a wealth of information that is specific to that population group. So with the physicians, we've got some resources that includes things like the newest updated guidelines on celiac disease that were just published. There are also resources such as NASP again. They have an education program for learning about celiac disease. You can go to NIH who also has training materials for celiac disease. But of course, also check out any of the research centers around the U.S. and around the world. They've got some great resources there. Many of the societies, the medical societies for celiac disease and celiac research also put on webinars for free. So those are places you can get education credits as well as learn more about celiac disease. Okay, that's fascinating. So you mentioned yourself that you've gone through this this journey, as they call it. I always think a journey sounds like you're going to a nice destination. Mm -hmm. What are some of the common barriers that patients experience beyond diagnosis? One of the most common barriers to even getting screened, treated for celiac disease, is that most physicians, especially primary care, just don't see enough celiac patients. And so it's not at the top of their list of things they would be looking for. Again, it it mimics so many other conditions. If you see a patient easily breaking bones, this may be a symptom of celiac disease. If you see a patient with a chronic rash that just doesn't go away with normal treatments, this may be a symptom of dermatitis herpetiformis or DH, which is a type of celiac disease. You just don't see that many patients. And because of that, being able to see the triggers that might say, oh, I should look for celiac disease, that's probably the biggest hurdle, physician understanding and knowledge of the condition. But also the variability of the symptoms can also make it very hard to diagnose. So being patient and ruling out conditions, I would firmly suggest that nobody should be put on a gluten-free diet without going through a screening process and ruling out other conditions such as irritable bowel, Crohn's or colitis, because that then sets the patient up to have a harder time getting a diagnosis ultimately. A lot of patients out of frustration in not getting answers and having to see general practitioners, primary medicine, traditional Western medicine, they're out of frustration of not getting answers in a timely manner. They will move and turn to more natural and homeopathic medicine, which also that group of physicians doesn't necessarily have a strong understanding of celiac disease and gluten-free diets. And if they don't, the same issues arise. They may be listening to patients' symptoms 
and treating those symptoms, but not getting a good diagnosis so that a patient knows, is this something that I really have to be concerned about? Because celiac disease does have additional triggering diagnosis or could have additional health issues if the diet is not followed strictly, because that is the only treatment at this time. I understand. Thank you. And so you mentioned as part of your experience, you've become involved with the Gluten Intolerance Group. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about that organization and what its mission is and how it functions? The Gluten Intolerance Group is a nonprofit organization in the United States. It's 50 years old next year. We have always supported patients with celiac disease especially from the beginning. And now we also support people with gluten sensitivities, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, especially. Our mission is to make living life easier, living gluten-free. What we do is we don't focus so much on research and finding a cure as much as we help to focus on how do I live today with a gluten-free dietary need? Uh, because that is my only treatment at this time to be able to stay healthy. So we focus on patient education, patient support. We also have a secondary arm where we do food safety. So we have a certification program for products to make sure that the foods are truly uh, gluten-free when they're produced and we do production audits. We also do that for food services. So we're making sure that their processes and procedures truly will allow for gluten-free customers to dine gluten-free. That is one of the scariest things still today is that people are afraid to eat out because at least in the U.S. there's this... Um, feeling by some food services yeah. that I treat the meal different if you tell me you have an allergy or a disease than if you tell me it's a life preference. And that just can't happen. So is the GIG, I guess that's the short uh, name for it, is that involved as well in policy? We have been heavily involved in policy, in regulations. We have also been involved in education. So in 2014, for instance, the NIH did their first symposium or consensus conference on celiac disease. I was a, one of their speakers at that consensus conference. We have stayed involved in the FDA's work and their guideline making policies. We continue to work with them. We have FDA representatives who sit on our impartiality panels related to our food safety programs. So we want to make sure that we're involved and they understand what we're trying to do to further the safety of food products as well. Right. And about raising awareness, I know that May is the Celiac Disease Awareness Month. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Do you have a theme or a certain annual process you do? Uh, yes, May is Celiac Awareness Month. During that month, we put out a lot of education. A lot of times, it's also engaging and empowering people to speak out about what their experiences have been. So uh, for the past couple of years, we have taken consumer stories. What has that been their experience? And then we build education around that. During the pandemic, we put out thank you boxes to people who were working in the healthcare industry who just didn't have the opportunity to have some of the shared meals that were being given to hospitals and facilities 
when they're gluten-free. So for us, this is about bringing awareness. We will sometimes do webinars. We do education. We put out a lot of education around different activities we're doing. So we're going to be talking about food safety in restaurants and food services. We will be doing stories again this year and telling people how to empower themselves through their own messages. Perfect. What would be the final kind of action items that you would like to see coming from the medical community to support the activities of your organization and others that serve people with gluten sensitivities or allergies or celiac disease? One of the things that we hear from patients quite often is that the medical care team doesn't have enough knowledge about celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. So I think one of the important messages is to reach out to the support groups, whether it's a national support group or a local support group. These are the people who can help your patients more than any figure out the places to shop, the foods to buy, where to dine out and feel safe about it. They have that feet on the ground, I live this every day knowledge that is so important. Getting a diagnosis of celiac disease can be devastating and initial response is, what am I going to feed my child? What am I going to eat for dinner? What am I gonna do for my family? Now do I have to cook two meals? And if you can get past that initial hump, the rest of learning to live with gluten-free takes time and adjustment, but it's so much easier if you just know what to do with your meals. Okay. Thank you so much. I think that it should be prescribed to all patients with getting that diagnosis that they should join or find a patient group because that peer-to-peer support can be so transformative to their adjustment. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. So much appreciated. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.